0: Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.
1: Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world.
2: And I did 150 meetings with various uh, fund-to-fund managers, pool operators, anybody I could, family offices. You know, I'd go to New York and spend from Monday through Friday, yeah. um, one after another, and uh, raised $0 over about a year. And that was one of the reasons why, I, and I, I'd be going into these fund-to-fund guys and saying, you know, you're all stock-oriented. If you blend in some of this fund, you actually improve your return-to-risk ratios. It's like a slam dunk decision. Yeah. Well, you know, we've always stayed with stocks. I don't know about this futures thing. I go to a pool operator and they'd say, well, we understand the futures stuff, but you've got mutual funds in there. I don't know if our, you know, legal framework can cover securities. I don't know if our partners want to do that. You know, there's always excuses.
1: Enjoy the ride. That sounds like a Harley Davidson motto to me, the Davidson part especially, but it's a philosophy that can be applied to anything from playing golf, drinking wine, and of course, riding a nice long trend in the market. Uh, so today's guest does all three of those things, using his favorite enjoy the ride motto to guide his day to day. He's a legendary trader, quote unquote, per Michael Cavell's latest book, having taught himself the ropes for launching CTA Trendstat. He's the author of Panic Proof Investing and the self-published The Frustrated Investor, Uh, and even in his retirement from the biz continues to manage money and provide investment wisdom for every level of trader. So without further ado we'll welcome Tom Basso to the room. Thanks for joining us.
2: Uh, Good to meet you Jeff. All right
1: you too Um, and so we were just chatting that's your virtual background of your lovely Scottsdale view off your deck.
2: Yeah if I wake up early enough in the morning being retired and all that's what I see. That's the morning sunrise uh, from my back deck in Scottsdale. got another home up in the mountains that has an equally beautiful view out its back deck but uh, don't have that one handy
1: my uh wife's uncle has a place up in desert mountain that i've been to a few times Uh, it's
2: just 15 minutes from here
1: yeah and you get the sunset and the infinity pool and yeah that's good living Yeah, yeah um and those you're a big golfer you ever play any of those courses aren't there like six nicholas courses there or something
2: uh they're up to seven now seven come on yep they added a seventh. They can, you can play one every day of the week now.
1: Woo. And they're all Nicholas?
2: Uh, they are. Awesome. Um, where do you usually play? I'm usually Pinnacle Peak Country Club in the uh, valley. And then I'm up at uh, Chaparral Pines in the mountains in Payson, Arizona at about 5,000 feet. And uh, both are beautiful courses. And uh, I'm pretty much in heaven uh, year-round.
1: And is it like Target golf
2: out there in the desert? You got to no uh pinnacle peak is one of about three or four courses in the metropolitan area that went with the old style parkland setting using eucalyptus trees like rancho santa fe did out in uh, san diego area yeah so you have tree lined fairways you have dog legs left and right where you have to work the ball it's highly technical uh, a lot of fun golf for me uh desert golf where you're hitting the target you could bend it right to left left to right you're up in the airspace over top of the cactus. There's nothing in the way, but when you get a 50, 60, 70 foot eucalyptus tree that you got to go around, you got to, you got to golf your ball.
1: You got to pay attention. Uh, yeah. What's your, what's your handicap?
2: Uh, right now I'm about a 10, 10.
1: There you go. Yep. It's pretty good. You shot your age yet? Oh no. You're not old I'm enough o- Yeah.
2: I'm only 68. Well, <laughs> I've, got, right. I've got a, I've got to probably make it another fifteen years or so, and I might get there.
1: Right, you either got to be really good or really
2: old, right? (laughs) And I'm, I'm not really good, and I'm not really old.
1: They'll somewhere they'll cross. That's yeah, exactly.
2: uh, It hasn't happened yet. The golden cross of uh, of golf. Yeah.
1: And then what? What you have those little. uh, I've been out there a few times and there's those little pig things that run around. What are those things called? uh...
2: Javelinas.
1: Javelinas, that's right.
2: Yeah, a pot of javelina can be very dangerous when uh, a papa or mama is protecting the little ones. Uh, Papa particularly has some big husks that come out and you do not want to mess with a papa javelina that's uh, mad at you. So no, uh, I don't want to mess I, with a I,
1: papa javelina I, that's not mad at me.
2: We we just uh, just had a, a lady friend of ours that was out walking uh, at night and ran into a pod of javelina and uh, they charged her and she went to the hospital. Uh oh, yeah, it could get bad.
1: I think they should have come up with something better than a pod, right? Well, Opens I don't know. I think it. Should be like I, a, <laughs> a habit of javelina or something.
2: Whatever. I don't get to name these things. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh do they eat those things out there or anything uh
2: people have tried and um it's like a wild boar right it's like a little mini boar. yeah apparently they have a very awkward taste that is nearly impossible to get away from and uh (laughs) i know some people have really tried hard because they are uh to some extent a nuisance in places and i don't know that anybody's ever figured out how to cook them no matter what i mean soaking them brining them whatever i and i'm not sure if they don't maybe have parasites too and then you got to deal with those and you make sure yeah it's probably not a good idea (laughs) there i i go to safeway and pick up my uh, pork chops or something it's a lot easier
1: (laughs) um and on top of all the golf and javelina stuff you're um a winemaker now right
2: yeah i i make uh usually italian reds And I usually have the juice shipped into my uh, Payson, Arizona house up in the mountains. And uh, I work with about 30 bottle carboys that I can lift myself uh, on a workbench that I built into uh, the earth and cellar that I do it all in. So the temperature is always about 60 degrees and I can do fermentation and I have a second carboy that I can transfer the clear juice to and take away the dregs and filtering and doing all the stuff that you got to do to go through the process. And then finally bottling, I have some equipment to bottle it. And I screw top everything. I think that's the most reliable way. Uh, Corks are a bad idea. I don't know why, I guess it's tradition, but I far prefer screw tops. Uh, from a reliability standpoint, and they the were wines. running
1: out of cork for a little bit there, right?
2: Well, it's like environmentally more makes more sense to me environmentally. It doesn't make more sense for the economy of Portugal because yeah. their workers really need the jobs to cut the cork. But um, yeah, I corks have air pockets through them, and sometimes bacteria can get through them, and um, it can spoil the wine. I've had six or seven bottles of wine over time. Uh, One at home and about six of them out at restaurants that were corked in completely bad bottles. You could tell they were, they just smelled bad. I mean, they were terrible. Uh, I've never had a screw top ever. And so
1: you get this, the juice, as you call it, gets shipped in from Italy?
2: Uh, Italy or uh, Italian grapes grown in California, either way. It depends uh, which one. I've been making a lot of um, Amarone. Uh, lately, and that's a very expensive juice to get a hold of because they have to dehydrate the grapes down to concentrate the juices. So it's quite the process. And if I can get the juice, it's I don't have to go through that extensive process. And then all I got to do is make the wine and it's completely yummy and um, uh, You know, reasonably easy, I can probably do a whole batch of wine in about six to eight weeks, all right. and, you know, start to finish. And what is bottle.
1: what is the juice cost? How, how do you buy that? Buy well, if, it,
2: if you work, out, work it out on a price per bottle basis, uh, for 30 bottles starting point, which gets down to about 28 finished bottles because you lose a couple in the process, uh, I'm down to about $10 a bottle for Amarone. And normally Amarone, if you go out to a liquor store, would cost you $60, $70 a bottle. All right,
1: nice. So you got a little trade baked in there.
2: right yeah. you. It all, it all disappears from my own cellar, either through <laughs> gifts. When I'm going over to somebody's house, I'd rather real, uh, bring them a nice bottle of my homemade Amarone than go out to a store and buy something that I am either okay with or not too sure of or whatever. I, I know the quality of my own wine. so
1: Right, but that's and, and, like a little $40 bonus that you got yourself.
2: Yeah, and it's, uh, people enjoy the fact that, you know, we've got my wife's picture on it, and I call it Brenda's Amarone, and we tell a little story about Brenda, and I make it humorous, and it's, it's kind of fun. Did
1: you see the, uh, who is it, the uh, long-term capital management guys have a a wine brand now, like Convexity or something it's called?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's bold. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: I think, i'll find it for you but it's like a big yeah it the label is like making fun of themselves
2: um, yeah, well they, they have a lot to make fun of yeah there's they got a lot coming
1: you're a engineer by trade right before chemical a trader yeah was that chemical. a chemical engineer so is this yeah. wine making back to your roots there
2: You know, there's a lot of chemical engineering in my life, even in the money management, because chemical engineering to me is, uh, think of a process, you're bringing something in like raw materials to a chemical process. And then a chemical engineer would go through the heat exchangers and the distillation columns and the reactors and the pumps and everything to create a different product, given those raw materials. Then you would ship that out to the world, to other chemical factories by pipeline, by rail car, by truck, by whatever, or use What's it inside. classic
1: examples, like making plastics?
2: Yeah, uh, you, you're shipping yeah. an oil, you're distilling it down to the uh, byproducts, you're taking some of the stuff like uh, the uh, hexane or something and you're, you're moving it through pipes over into another reaction at part of the, the process where you're... Uh, um- making an intermediate chemical or something and you're shipping it out in a rail car. So it's stuff in, process it, stuff out. What's money management? We got down links coming in satellites. We got internet. We got all this data comes in. We have computers that process it and try to decide, do we take action or do we just sit on our duff uh, and do nothing? And then we have orders that come out of that thought process, either once a day, once throughout, or uh, many times throughout the day, if you're day trading, once a week, whatever your trading process is, the orders come out and outflow from your operations outside in the world. So it's the same kind of thing. And with chemical engineering, you're always trying to optimize that environment and make your process more efficient. And Trent's Capital Management, which was my firm back in the day uh, until I retired in 2003, was literally that. I mean, we, we had 40 computers and 10 people, four of us were computer jocks. We just tried to keep computerizing ourselves out of business basically and let the computers <laughs> do all the heavy lifting uh, because humans are basically lazy. So we work very, very hard to be lazy. Yeah. And, uh, it, but it's just the same thing, you know. bring in the data, process it, ship out orders. I kind of it, the same would- thing as chemical engineering.
1: My uh good grades in school stopped at the chemistry uh classes. I didn't I I didn't like all those graphics and everything.
2: I um, got a perfect score uh or nearly perfect score. I missed by three uh on my my chemistry regents. So I got a 97 out of a hundred and I went back to the teacher and argued New York Board of Regents is wrong, and here's why. And I said, that's how much I knew chemistry. I, was, I had this I was, whole
1: debate with my daughter the other day. She's doing a project on Alaska. And in her, her thing, it said William Seward purchased Alaska. And I'm like, well, and, and she said and he, then he, uh, the US government paid him back. I'm like, uh, I don't think that's correct. She's like, no, that's what the teachers said. And I'm like, well, sometimes the teachers are wrong. She's like, teachers mm-hmm. aren't wrong. I'm like, no, they are. You got to learn how to question authority. Like, Seward mm-hmm. bought it on behalf of the United States. He didn't exactly. buy it himself and then gift it to the United States. That was a lot of money back then.
2: Yep, that's what I remember.
1: Um, so moving on, Covell says on his title of his new book, "How do you feel about having a whole book written about you?"
2: Yeah, it's different. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I have, in a very perverse retirement, uh, went from <laughs> basically not even trading for about a year and a half, and my uh, well, my wife Brenda actually got me back into trading because. I was enjoying retirement and I'm not doing anything. I was just relaxing I'd traded all my life and it was just nice to have a break. And uh, she came to me with her portfolio and sheepishly said, you know, I know that you know a lot about money management and I know we're getting married and you probably should take a look at this because I know that you're probably gonna end up having to advise me on it or manage it or whatever. And so it was about 20 minutes of disclaimers before she handed it over. And I looked at it and I said, you know, for somebody at your level in the public that has zero time, zero knowledge, you did a darn good job. Yeah. Congratulations. But then I took it over and, and because I was starting to manage her portfolio, I said, well, I might as well manage mine too at the same time. I'll just do some of the similar things. It won't take me extra time too much. And uh, then one thing led to another family somebody in Atlanta and, and another guy that, uh, a, a stepson that was over in uh, New Mexico at the time, now in Hawaii, um, it was such long distance that I felt like different time zones. My God, I'm three hours different from Atlanta and I'm another three hours, I think, different from Hawaii. Um, so I said, just so social media, let's throw it on Facebook. So I started just saying, if I have a hedge trade or if I'm doing something particular shifting my position, I just put it on there, figuring, you know, I'm getting broadcasting out to all my relatives
1: what I'm doing so that
2: I don't have to go one by one and tell them all. And, uh, and then some of my old trader friends started figuring out I was doing that and they were interested in which way I was leaning and they remembered me from the old days. And then they start sharing things with their friends who are also traders. And pretty soon I've got thousands of people following me on Facebook. Then actually larry tentarelli over in massachusetts says to me tom you know there's a lot of stuff happening on twitter you should just take your posts and just copy yeah. them and put them over on twitter now i've got twenty-seven thousand twitter followers <laughs> and then MeWe we just came around in parlor and i've got like hundreds of uh me we followers now and i've got a whole bunch of linkedin followers and i hardly ever am on linkedin but people keep asking to link to me so um uh, my life has gone from being, you know, basically retiring and being somewhat at that point obscure to being this, uh, having books coming out on me and having a lot of interviews I do, and I enjoy them. I mean, this is my favorite topic of my life, really. I th- I love trading and I love helping people, and uh, and we don't always just talk about trading. We talk about wine and other things, so exactly. it's always fun. I have fun, fun with part. these interviews, but uh, yeah. it it has been. Um, let's see, I've been retired uh, 2003, about 18 years now. Mm. And uh, I've got videos I've done, I've done webinars, I do a lot of interviews, I, I write research reports if they amuse me at the time, if I have the time to do it and I find a topic that I think is interesting and helpful to people. And I run enjoytheride.world, which is my website that I put together uh, after having wine, In Malaga, Spain, with my wife one day, uh, we were trying to take care of the problem of me getting a lot of emails and questions from people that were the same questions that people tend, you know, new traders say, Tom, if you you have the time, I have this problem, I'm trying to solve this, what do I do? And I would answer them all. And I've answered thousands of these in my retirement. And we were trying to think of a way to make that more efficient. Again, process in, make it more efficient, information out chemical engineering 101 and um we couldn't figure it out by way of emails but we then started figuring what if we did a retirement website and put a lot of my knowledge about trading in one place and make it all the way from in some cases free to in some cases like the video series it's like 2400 dollars or something for a 16 17 set Video series that I did in my shop myself, edited myself, put it together over the course of months. And it's, it's everything I can think of about trading all in one place. So, the seminar I'm going through this weekend, two days in Miami, um, teaching it with uh, Lawrence Bensdorf, who's a master trader from Brazil. He, he speaks six languages, so he can take care of all the language issues. I can take care of the English. I do half the, the <laughs> presentation. He does half, gives me a break. And um, all of these things are a, a way to efficiently get a lot of information out to people without me having to, you know, be in an office eight day, eight hours a day, you know, yeah. five days a week, just slogging like, through all you that have stuff. You
1: experienced, the more you put out there, the more people want to. It's kind of self-defeating as well. Like, okay, I fixed the email problem. Now I got 10,000 tweets and direct messages coming in and <laughs> seminars I'm going to. So, yeah. yeah
2: yeah tweets uh have the both blessing and curse of being limited by character so yeah uh, i find everything there is pretty quick facebook gets a little bit more involved sometimes but if somebody asks me a question that is gets beyond messenger and you know it's just awkward to do it i i give them my email and say could you ask me the same question over an email and i can answer it a lot easier over there
1: yeah i'm not doing so it i i kind of do weeks. it
2: to suit me and um, A lot of times, if somebody asks me a question that I know is answered on the uh, website, I just have my website up all the time. I just go to that page, copy the link, say, your answer is here. If you need more, let me know. Tom.
1: So take me way back, even before Trendstat, of how you got started, um, how you became known as this legendary trader kind of before um, all that other stuff. So, take us back. Uh, how, do, well, how did it all get started?
2: It all got started, I guess, initially. The first investment was a mutual fund with Fidelity that was front end loaded while I was a paper boy at 12 years old. I had about right. $10 a week. And I decided if I could put $10 a week away, I might be able to pay for some of my own college education because my father was a postman. And my mom cleaned dishes at the high school and uh my father worked extra uh, uh, handyman jobs just to try to keep us in clothes and us three kids in clothes and food and my brother's six five and 260 and i'm six three and uh, 207 this morning so we ate a lot and uh so my poor dad and uh had and mom had to try to had to try to keep up with it all and uh so by the time I got around to college between scholarships and uh, savings and uh, my mutual fund that I had saved and all that. I was in good shape to take, uh, I think it cost me about 18,000 to go to Clarkson University and get a chemical engineering degree uh, back in the day. It's it's now more like 160,000 in today's terms, uh, but 18,000. And I think I ended up with about 4,000 a student loan. So I, I, through summer jobs working as, you know, reffing basketball games and doing whatever I was able to get through. Now, uh, when I'm coming out of college, that was another critical juncture because now I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I got 26 job offers at chemical companies and oil companies. As a chemical engineer, I wonder which one I should take. So part of your decision is what city are they in? What's the climate like there? What's the job entail? How much are they going to pay me, et cetera. And then another one, I thought, you know, I, maybe I should check out their stock price and just see what their stock programs and what their stock is doing. Maybe that'll give me some insight as the companies that are sort of failing or other ones that seem to be going crazy. So I started plotting like 26 different companies' uh, stock price and I didn't know how to do that. So I got a book on point and figure charting, read it, started the point and figure chart back in those days. This is pre-computers now, you know I mean? Right, you're doing I this paid... on
1: graph paper or something?
2: graph paper. Yep. Little, little tiny square boxes, X's, O's point and figure all by hand and did that for about a year or so. And And tell people what a
1: point and figure chart is. I don't know if our listeners know exactly (laughs) what that is.
2: Uh, yeah. If you go on some of the broker platforms, they might have that as one of the indicators, but it goes back to old school floor charting where there's zero computers, not even calculators. And if you're on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you had to have a little piece of uh, postcard that you can put in your pocket and you had to have a pencil or a pen and you had to be able to track how prices went up, which are X's and prices went down are O's and they go up again and it's X's and O's and you get to see where the chart patterns are and are the prices every time you have an X, does the X make it higher than the previous row of X's and therefore you're sort of in an uptrend or does the O's exceed to the downside, the previous row of uh, or column of O's and therefore you're on the downside and you're in a bear market or a bear move. And that's the way these guys could easily keep track of which way was the market drifting at any point in time and to get do it with zero computers and very quickly. So there's no time axis uh, on a point and figure chart. It's just X's up. And then when it decides to turn around go the other way you start doing zeros or O's.
1: Yeah, but at a price uh, level, right?
2: Yeah, at the different price levels. So as the price hits that level, you just put another row or if going down some farther, you put another row and you just keep doing it. And uh, that's how I started out. And then I graduated into bar charting and uh, in 1980, was thrilled to buy my first IBM PC with all of something like, uh, was it four? k bytes of ram yeah. <laughs> or something ridiculous my phone has like hundreds or thousands of times the capacity of my first yep. computer and uh, a couple years later i bought an ibm at the rest is history i just kept programming things growing i hired computer programmers i started out with just uh, basically a secretary and myself and some computers and then you know By the time we hit the peak, we were 600 million and trading, we had clients all over the world. Uh, I traded money for Merrill Lynch and Chase and Bank of Montreal and Royal Bank of Canada and all sorts of-
1: So did you ever take one of those chemical engineering jobs? Or no, you went straight to- Oh yeah,
2: no, I did take a chemical engineering job for about, uh, stayed there for about five years. At
1: Monsanto, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And then I moved over into marketing research for about two and a half years. And then I became a strategic planning analyst In the chemical industry which is basically picking apart your competitors and trying to figure out based on aerial photographs or effluent streams that are filed with the EPA uh, back calculating using my chemical engineering experience roughly what their capacity might be in other words if you know they're emitting this amount of effluent then you can back calculate by the process they're using in the typical impurity streams you can take a guess at how much is their capacity because they're your competitor and you're trying to figure out what percent market share do you have, what percent do they have. You're doing a lot of chemical engineering on your competitors and on the marketplace, on your customers, trying to figure out the best way to get your product out there at the maximum possible price and, yeah. and use up your capacity or decide whether you need more capacity and make a recommendation that we increase the capacity of the plant uh, or something. So that was kind of fun for a while. and then Yeah. And then, then you began, said,
1: screw all this, I'm going to go manage money. So, I okay. was
2: making so much money on money, it's money management on the side, just going home at night and doing all the updates and computerizing in stocks, it. In stocks. In stocks. Or, in stocks. That yeah. uh, yeah, was that day in stocks. And I was making enough money from that, that it paid me exactly the same money I was making from my chemical engineering job so I didn't even have to take a cut and pay. Uh, benefits and everything were all covered. Uh, I went and started the business up, hired the secretary, leased the office, got the computers going, went out and kept raising the money. Eventually, I had a couple partners join me. Eventually, I left that firm to them and formed Trendstat and never looked back and grew it to a huge operation covering futures, currencies. We traded 30 currency pairs at the peak, about 80 futures markets, um, 25 mutual funds, um, individual stocks, uh, T bills for collateral control. Yeah. Um, A lot of stuff going on. (laughs) And what was
1: the base model? Was trend following? Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah. Trend set. And Mm -hmm.
1: very what would be considered today basic trend following or a lot of bells and whistles?
2: Well, we had our own little wrinkles that I figured out. I had great position sizing, which I wrote a book on now, called, uh, uh, what, Successful Traders Size Their Positions, Why and How, and it's only 65, 70 pages, maybe 80. Uh, Simple math that you learned in about seventh grade at the latest, and uh, it's a simple way that Trendstat used to keep all their positions sized appropriately for, for the different market conditions that existed and in every trade that comes along and across the portfolio. So I actually spelled it out in detail, the precise same models that we used at Trendstat. And it's $10, I I kept it so inexpensive so that you can download it electronically. It doesn't cost me much for you to download it electronically, doesn't cost you much to buy it. It's sold thousands and thousands of copies now and people love it. So stuff like that we had figured out with the help of a lot of research. I did a lot of simplistic simplistic research for MAR reports back in the day uh, that no longer exists, I understand. Uh, And a lot of these were just uh, kind of my observation of some of the stupid things that go on in the money management industry even by the professionals in the money management industry that yeah. don't make sense to me and don't hold water mathematically, but they happen anyway. Such, and such uh, as? well, like, um, okay, so I'm a money manager. I'm going to a fund to fund manager and I've just ripped off six of the best months of track record that I've had in my entire lifetime. And the money is coming out of the woodworks. It's being thrown at me as fast as people can sign up Trendstat to manage 10 million here and 5 million there. And we want you to come into New York and meet our board, and we're going to give you 100 million. And uh, could you come over to uh, uh, Abu Dhabi and meet with us and all these different places? And everything goes nuts. And that's about the time you're about ready to go into your next drawdown. Drawdown. At the bottom of the drawdown, people are calling up, complaining, pulling money out, and and you're saying, you know, the risk levels are way down. This has kind of been overdone. We could be ready to turn the other way. Nah, they won't listen. Pull the money. So now your assets under management go down. You got to figure out how to deal with that from a business standpoint. And then the process starts all over again through the yeah. next lunatic, lunatic cycle.
1: I've always and thought I, it'd be someone should come out with a like reverse fee structure or something like to incent people to invest at those drawdowns, right? It'd be better for them. Uh, yeah. Better for the manager, like, hey, I'm going to give you fees are on sale when the when the equity curve's on sale, and yeah, disincentivize them work. to get in at the highest
2: I I would just rip off a 15% return or 20% return in a few months or whatever six months, and they'd want to give me 40 million dollars, but zero percent management fee and 20% incentive fee, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so I take on this account, and it goes into the next drawdown, and the next cycle happens. And uh, you pull it out at the bottom and I make no incentive fees. I get no management fees, but I'm gobbling up 40% or 40 million of my capacity, which is limited uh, with your money. It just doesn't make any business sense. So I turned down tons and tons of business over the years. I could have been a lot larger, but I just wanted quality business. I wanted good clients. I tried as much as possible to keep the clients that were sensible and knew what they were doing. Uh, And to some extent, Because I was, I would say a little more on the boring side, being an engineer and keeping everything sort of plodding along a little bit more than some of these guys that I was competing against uh, that um, would be up 60 and down 20, you know, all over the place and drive people crazy. Uh, I was a little bit more boring. Like John Henry. He was one of my major competitors. And, you know, you had Campbell and company and you had, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Dunn. Yeah. Uh, some of the turtles were out there during my years because they were my compatriots. They were they were all my age group, sort of. So we all came up together. Jerry Parker, a friend yeah. from the old days, you know, those kind of guys. So some Campbell of them are still and Dunn
1: and, and Chesapeake are still
2: at it. Yeah. Some of them are still out there. Yeah. Chesapeake was another one. Yeah. And so all... you, missed,
1: you mentioned the mutual funds. What were you doing in the mutual funds that you were trend following? I,
2: I was funds? timing. Yeah. I was timing mutual funds back when uh, mutual fund timing was starting to get a bad name and, Mutual funds were complaining about us timers, you know, moving money too quickly in and out and it was upping their costs and they had to adjust their position sizes and they didn't like that. And
1: but they're only pricing at end of day. So this was purely end of day strategy. End of day. What, what did you have some component where you were trying to get in at a better nav or something?
2: No. And end of day only. Nowadays, of course, you do that mutual fund timing in ETFs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what I do. I actually trade a I think a 23 ETF portfolio of all sorts of different sectors. And I use trend following to do it and position size it. And, and then, you know, it's, it's easy.
1: And at the were you always on in the trend set portfolio or would you get stopped out or would it reverse long short?
2: No, I didn't go short. Uh, and I don't now either. Uh, so trend that discuss- never went short? Oh, I went short. In the futures area, but in the, in, the, in the mutual funds, yeah, yeah, yeah no. you couldn't go short and even ETFs, you could go short, but I choose not to. Yeah,
1: I'm talking, so back to trend stat and the overall portfolio. So you had all these currency pairs, you eventually moved into futures. So we're talking you know, like- a,
2: I started with futures, moved into currencies.
1: Okay, into spot currencies. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. And you're trend fun. following
1: those. That took a
2: year to make that transition, by the way. I mean, I was well known as a future trader, we were already up in like the 100 million range and a very viable CTA making tons of money. And I decided to go into currencies and FX is so different on the programming, it took us a good year to work out all the bugs. It was quite the learning curve.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... And so, give give me a little more on the portfolio. So it's a classic trend following global portfolio, 80 plus markets or so.
2: So Uh, you're- Yeah, I mean, we were trading for a while, like things like red beans. Yeah, Azuki uh, red beans, is that what they're- Yeah, and uh, rubber, and uh, gosh, we were into the weeds on some of the stuff. I had to convince some of the people that had put those in there, when I looked at the transaction costs and the slippage, I said, you know, the slippage is eating up all the profits you'd ever make from this thing. It doesn't make any sense. Let's just get rid of it. It's not worth trading. Yeah. And um, so we, we pared that down a bit. And I think at the end, we were probably down to about 40 markets or so. 40 to 60 worldwide in today's world would be probably what you'd be limited to. And a lot of it would be debt instruments uh, worldwide, sovereign debt around the world. Uh, the currencies certainly have de- uh, depth to them. A few of the agricultural commodities have depth. Uh, energy certainly has some depth. You start getting into lumber. I mean, I can do that for my own portfolio in retirement. But yeah. back in Trendstad days, I mean, I looked the other day. The whole volume for the day was like 147 contracts or something. It,
1: yeah. No thanks.
2: Yeah, you know, it's with kind 600
1: million dollars. Of- you're the you're the bull you're not the ant on the
2: bulls no line, you're, right? you're you're going to find yourself in a lot of limit moves where you can't get out of the market
1: so somewhere along the way there you got approached by jack Swagger, and you went into the, yeah, New market Wizards
2: the book. the jack Swagger story uh, was interesting because he really didn't want to interview me initially but tharp and some other people kept saying you know basso's got some interesting stuff he he, he's kind of this guy that approaches things analytically, and he keeps everything smooth and he's a little boring, but he's very interesting on the mental side of trading, and he's figured out a lot of things. You ought to interview him, it'd be interesting. So Tharp puts together a seminar up in New Jersey, and I get invited as a guest speaker, and Jack happens to be offered a free deal to come and just sit there and listen. And by uh, lunch, the last day, he comes rushing over to me at break and says, Tom, what are you doing for lunch? Let's, I'd like to interview you. I'm, I got a next book coming out. And, and uh, so we s- decide to go to lunch and we do the lunch. He, we're running out of time. And I said, Jack, I got to get back. I'm the guest speaker this afternoon. <laughs> I got to be there. And we're kind of pushing it. And but I'm having a good time. Why don't you just call me up when I'm back in Scottsdale and you're up in New York. And, you know, yeah. we'll chat on the phone and finish our talk. No big deal. Mm-hmm. he says great so he does it writes it up he uh, fedexes me the, uh, the the whole chapter and he, of course he names me mr serenity and i'm reading through the whole thing and uh, i read through it I was like at lunch i'm having lunch and reading this thing and i get all done i call him up they said hey uh, fedex delivered it this morning i've already got the entire chapter read i do have one comment and uh, he said, okay, let me get a copy, you know, papers. I said, turn to page eight, turns to page eight. I said, this word is misspelled. He said, okay, what else? I said, that's it. That's it. <laughs> he said, uh, Mr. that's it. You don't have any other changes. I said, no, I thought you pretty much captured the interview pretty well. You, some cases you kind of modified what I said to make it more sensible. It sounds better than the way I would say it. No, I think it's very understandable. It's exactly what I was trying to get across. No problem. He said, Are you okay with my naming you Mr. Serenity? I said, Jack, it's your book. You can name me anything you want. I don't not I don't have a problem with it. He said, big pause. Said, Tom, this was the easiest chapter I have ever written in all of the wizards' books. It's like <laughs> I turned it on, it flowed out of me. I was done. And it was just the way I wanted it. And now you have a spelling mistake and you haven't changed the thing either and uh, i don't know if it'll be in the book it's up to the publisher and the editors to decide but i really enjoyed uh doing this interview it ended up in the book i became mr serenity uh became a a well-known entity in the industry at that point and uh kind of my life went crazy
1: what so do you think were so were you as famous before then or no so that that puts you on the map in terms of being a uh, legendary trader yeah yeah
2: Yeah, that probably made me legendary before i was getting well known and i was making a lot of inroads and i was getting a lot of business and we were growing rapidly but after market wizards you know that's when i became legendary and but but
1: it was uh I was always under the impression in the past that you were like doing your own personal trading, then there was the market wizards, then there was Trendstat, but that's not true. Oh was, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, so
2: Trendstat, no
1: Trendstat Trendst- predated all this to
2: right? <laughs> Uh Trendstat i was the proverbial uh 20 20 year overnight success. Yeah. When, when market wizards came out, new market wizards came out. I was well known everywhere, all of a sudden, but uh, no, I I had already been slogging away for 20 years in the trenches to get to that point.
1: And then I read, I can't remember where that was, maybe in one of Kobel's books that you did, I can't remember exactly, but 115 meetings or something one year. 150. Zero uh, assets raised. So just, yep. I think that's, we got a lot of managers who listen to this. So tell us about that. I well, found it I guess, interesting of all the excuses and the backs and the fore. Yeah,
2: you know, I had a product that uh, I called a multi-strategy single manager multi-strategy fund, and it covered uh, securities with mutual fund timing. It covered currencies with FX. It covered futures markets by multiple strategies. There was like six or seven strategies embedded in one fund, with a very attractive management fee and incentive fee, both on the low side of the industry, in a partnership format. And I did 150 meetings with various fund of fund managers, pool operators, anybody I could. Family offices. You know, I'd go to New York and spend from Monday through Friday. Yeah. Um, one after another, and uh, raised zero dollars over about a year. And that was one of the reasons why, I, and I might be going into these fund to fund guys and saying, you know, you're all stock oriented. If you blend in some of this fund, you actually improve your return to risk ratios. It's like a slam dunk decision. Yeah. Well, you know, we've always stayed with stocks. I don't know about those futures things. And I go to a pool operator and they'd say, well, we understand the future stuff, but you got mutual funds in there. I don't know if our, you know, legal framework can cover securities i don't know if our partners want to do that you know there's always excuses everybody was looking for what they didn't like about it rather than realizing the benefits of it so my what year is this this is now getting back into 2001 and uh one area 2002 the, the bubble hadn't totally burst yet
1: or it was just starting oh no to it
2: was it was bursting uh, you know the tech bubble oh yeah it was already getting beat okay. up and so I was watching through guys it
1: guys wouldn't have been as uh, excited to be saying oh no we only do stocks
2: no I mean these guys had just gotten beat up and I showed them where they wouldn't have gotten beat up if they had done something more sensible tried to talk in their language you know I'd been in the business for twenty eight years or whatever it was I knew how to speak the language and. They, uh, many cases, they appreciated what I was saying, but you could just say they didn't have the courage, they didn't, it was something new. And there was only myself, and I forget who else at the time. I wanna say, I don't think it was Campbell. I'm trying to think of who was my competitor. There was two people out there that were starting to get into what I call a single manager multi-strategy. And so you're putting multiple strategies under one umbrella and charging one fee schedule. And the advantage of course is, is that when you have a pool and you're you're hiring 10 different managers, like I was frequently hired, if I'm making money and getting an incentive fee, but the next guy's losing what I'm making, then the fund itself is not benefiting at all by the two of us being in there. But you're paying me an incentive fee and not an incentive fee to the next guy, so it doesn't make sense okay. from the clients. But if you risk. do a single manager multi strategy, now you offset all of those strategies, and you pay one incentive fee on the total fund. It makes a lot more sense for the clients.
1: Well, but you have the idiosyncratic risk of that single manager. Would be the other flip side of that, but yeah,
2: I guess. Okay, but if you and trusted these- me to, if you wanted to hire me to do one single manage uh, single strategy, why wouldn't you? to do multiple strategies you know you trust me that much why not trust me a little bit more yeah but but 150 appointments and nothing so i i started looking at my life and saying you know i'd rather be dancing or singing or cooking or making wine or playing golf or whatever this running around the world beating my head against the wall and people just don't seem to get it and this was back in like 2002 remember okay so now there's two of us kind of competing and neither one of us is, you know, doing very much trying to pull anything together. And, uh, so I go away from the industry and retire and, uh, and, uh, have a smile on my face most days. And lo and behold, Eric Crittenton about three years ago, calls me out of the blue and he and I have known each other for a couple of decades. He's here in Scottsdale. So am I, he says, Tom, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm out of my old firm and I would love to have lunch with you. I've been kicking around a few things. So he sits there and lays out this whole thing uh, about uh, how he, he's thinking of doing an alternative management fund that can do securities and futures and blend them together. Single manager, multiple strategy, yeah. same thing as Trendstat. And he wants to put it inside of a mutual fund which is so much more sellable than a partnership is. Uh, investment company, Act of 40 Oh my God. I said, Eric, do you know how much that's going to cost? And he says, yeah, I do. Yeah. It's going to be 400 to $500,000 probably in legal expenses. And I said, then you realize you're going to have to have a team of people. He says, yeah, I think I, I have an idea who I could get. And then he starts uh, laying out the strategy to me. And I'm blown away. It is brilliant. It is simple. I love it. Uh, it has aspects of trend following. It deals very well with large capacity. He can easily manage several billion without yeah. any issues at all. He lays it all out at lunch. The lunch was like four hours long. <laughs> Hopefully blown away. A
1: good
2: spot. I, my adrenaline was flowing. I, I was so high, sky high. So we got to get get. Yeah. Well, we we got to get no, not at that point. I wasn't. <laughs> i still retired. So he starts uh, saying, "Well, let's get together again. You know, I'm going to think about it some more, and, let, and you think about it too. Let's let's get together in a couple of months." So another three months goes by. We get him another three-hour lunch, and we talk about it. And now he's got people identified. He's got a little bit more structure to what he thinks he's going to need to pull it off. And I tweaked it a little bit, and I said, you know, Eric, from my standpoint, I think you're being too conservative. I think you need this and that, and we hem and haw, and I give him my grandfatherly advice at that point because I'm getting into my late 60s, and he's still a little younger than I am. And uh, he writes that all up, and he comes back to me and says, Tom, I'm ready to go. I uh, I think I've got all the pieces of the puzzle together. I've got my software. Uh, under development, I got the people doing the software. I've taken programming myself. I know what markets I'm going to trade. I've done a lot of simulations. I think I'm ready to go. And I said, so how much you got to raise? And he told me the number. I made a few phone calls. And inside of, uh, I think it was five days, had all of the capital raised for the management company. There Within go. about six, seven months, they uh, put together the legal on it. Uh, which was extensive. It was very expensive. These are lawyers that are going to charge you three, four hundred dollars an hour. I mean, it is insanely expensive because not very many, not very many people really understand this stuff. And you got to do offshore corporation to take care of the future side and get it to fit inside the. Um, you got to, uh, inside the mutual fund. You got to get yep. um, you got to get your fund managers, your custodians, all that garbage. Oh my gosh, so much <laughs> legal work finally get it together, finally pull the people together. I've raised the capital. Uh, they eat into the capital by half a million or so to get the thing off the ground. They've got a budget for the rest of it. Comes time to form the board. Well, I'm on the board. A guy named TK Kellenbach's on the board and Eric's on the board. There's three people. Uh, Eric and I are pretty darn knowledgeable of investments, you could say. Yeah, and uh, TK uh, is run the highest level. He's on the board of uh, Cathay Pacific. I mean, he's at oh, wow. the highest level of boards out there in the world in the airline industry. But That's very good be with a corporate structure.
1: Have been on the past year?
2: <laughs> uh, a, no, not really. I no, read numbers. We, no, uh, it turns out no cafe pacific oh yeah 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 oh yeah yeah with the pandemic and airlines going (laughs) well and hong kong is their headquarters yeah so there's a lot Mm, lot even more interesting uh so we have a blast at our board meetings we're we're so work so well together and uh management team is so talented and uh they're above 50 million now and we're gonna we're trying to get together a happy hour to celebrate going over 50 million but uh, they're they're beating their expectations on both performance of the fund, uh, the risk uh, versus their sector. Uh, we're, we're beating our marketing goals in terms of assets under management. And we've so everything's done cruising a pod,
1: on. We've done a pod with Eric, we'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. do you think, so when you were doing your multi-strat and timing the mutual funds, you didn't have kind of an always long equities component though, right?
2: So no, would you- I would, and Eric does.
1: Right. So do you think the industry had to like, you were ahead of your time even a little bit, the industry had to come along in order for this product to even exist. Right. I feel I back, st- in the, back in the day, everyone wanted to do it them. Oh no, I've, I've got the equity piece. I'll find the alternatives piece. I'll put them together.
2: Yeah. Standpoint is And maybe me- now
1: because we're, we've gotten Twitterized and we want everything done for us. Millennials like, no, this, they do it. They do it for you. They put it together for you. Just send your money over there. Exactly. And it'll automatically right. rebalance, right? There's a lot of good that comes out of that. A
2: ton of good, and uh, and so standpoint to me uh, in my life is Trendset 2.0. I, yeah. I feel like being the chair. I guess I got because I raised all the capital that got the yeah. thing off the ground. They when you're showing your age,
1: though, they call it 2.0, not 2.0, <laughs> 2.0,
2: <Yeah>. 2.0. <laughs> okay, whatever. But <laughs> it's it's basically single manager, multi-strategy fund, which in this case, you don't have to beat your your, your head against the wall for 150 appointments and get zero capital. People are uh, basically signing up for the fund as fast as we can process it. Um, It's kind of nice, a real, real different environment for me. And I'm having a blast uh, kicking ideas around for uh, Eric and how to position himself, how to help him with things like public relations. Cause Eric is, um, you know, started out like I did as an engineer sort of nerd. He wasn't an engineer, but he <laughs> yeah. definitely admits Once to being a nerd. a nerd back in the day. And I would admit to being one too. And you kind of have to figure out how to do a logical podcast with someone and how to smile every now and again, how to tell a joke here and there, how to tell a story. And uh, I'm giving him a little bit of my fatherly advice about those types of things. I'm also talking a lot with him about strategic direction and uh, how to deal with future capacity issues and how to get ahead of problems rather than have them be surprise you. And, that and so blend, we have a-
1: Sorry, that blend beautiful. solves the issue you were talking about of like, oh, we're in this drawdown, I'm gonna pull my money right when I should be putting it back to work, right? The blend concept kind of solves that issue by, removing the line item um, and you can just- Well, look at
2: it this way. Let's say you have 50-50 like we do at Standpoint and 50 of it is something like 60 different futures markets and the other 50 is a bunch of worldwide uh, stock exposure, long. Yep. Okay, so let's say you go through a beat yourself up bear market and the 50% that was stocks is now only 40% making, of course, the futures part of it now 60%. Well, then what you're gonna do is take uh, 10% out of the futures and you're gonna move it over to the 40% of stocks. And in the middle, at the end of this drawdown that you're going through in stocks, you're gonna be putting money into the stock portfolio to catch the next upswing.
1: Yeah, and there's been, I don't know the- if exact seen opposite
2: the, uh... of what clients to, typically do. <laughs> so you're fighting the client psychology and the, the types of things that is bad investing that I did all my research papers on standpoint internally is actually taking care of the problem for you.
1: Right, it's, it's like solving a I love market it. problem and a behavioral problem, and the behavioral problems have become much more uh, front of top of mind, right, recently. And
2: you know, I've done PhDs a lot of
1: research being written on that.
2: A lot of the questions that I get from Michael Covell and even you and others out there get into the psychological side of investing, and uh, I. Fond of remembering one thing that Van Tharp, who's a famous uh, psychologist in the industry, uh, talked about. He said, what's more important, your buy-sell decision, or your position sizing, or your mental side of your trading? And you, know, you get a lot of different comments, you know, and some people say, well, position sizing, I heard it's pretty important, but you, know, you got to know where you're going to buy or sell. or you know, And yeah, no, a pure Plot an-
1: would answer that: the buy and sell signals every time.
2: Exactly right. And not surprisingly, I did three webinars. Just decided, for the hell of it, <laughs> Saturday morning. Each one, my wife ran the show, and I was the obviously the speaker. Did one on trend following, uh, buy sell signals. I did one on position sizing, and I did one on the mental side of trading. The buy sell decision one, we had over a hundred people signed up for it and i had to expand my zoom capacity to handle it the position sizing i was down to about 45 and when i did the mental side we were down to 20 now i put them together into a library on enjoytheride.world website and people can buy the recorded version of it and whatever there's still the largest cells are the buy cell engine. And that's the least important. If you as Tharp would say, if you as a trader in your own mind, don't believe in what you're doing, or you get scared, or you get euphoric or whatever, you are going to jump in and screw up those other two things, because you have the ultimate power as the trader. The other two things are just, you know, they flow out of you, or they're just details. But the mental side's the most important. And of course, he's Mental side psychologist, so he would say yeah. that, but I truly believe right. it. I mean, I've seen so many guys just override,
1: system- yeah. But as a systematic, right? You'd be like, Well, it doesn't matter my mental state because it's all systematic, it's all computerized, right? So,
2: no why do I need way. to have
1: a good mental state?
2: Oh, say I come down to you know, we had we opened up, uh, down was it 500 on the Dow, or yesterday it was down 500, Dow, I forget. Uh, you get scared. You got everything systematic, and then uh, your your strategy goes in and says you got to be buying, and you look at what happened, and you go, "I don't know if I can buy." We're down five hundred today. So you, as the systematic trader, have the ultimate ability to turn the computer off, or yeah. not do the trade, or I'll take I'll take this trade that looks more sensible, but this one I'm a little scared. I'm not going to do that. All mental. If you aren't if you aren't head screwed on straight, balanced disciplined, taking self-responsibility, all those good things, mental, in the uh, trading game, you will find a way to screw it up.
1: The uh, Reminds me of a story, a, a programmer we worked with out of Spain actually had a trader said, can you make it so my uh, my trading platform won't open after I've had three losses in a row? So he's like... <laughs> He put a custom software on there where he wouldn't, because he analyzed his trades. And after three losses in a row, he'd start chasing and he'd, he'd turn a bad day into a really bad day.
2: Or a bad month or a bad year. And yeah. How many people out there in the retail public hire a manager? They, of course, buy him right at the top. And then they go through the next drawdown and they hate the guy. Uh, I'm getting tired of him. I'm going to fire him. I'm going to take the money and I'm going to buy... Joe Schmo over here who's just finished a really good track record and I'm going to get in on that one and then he goes into his drawdown and oh gosh I I wish I knew more what I was doing I keep losing money buying these guys none of these guys know what they're doing if he just stayed with the first guy might be at all-time highs I mean I many times was at all-time highs in my equity uh my equity curve, and I was one of my best clients. I would, on drawdowns, I would add more. And on when I was really, really uh, gotten to higher risk structures, I would get a little nervous when people were throwing money at me and I'd start peeling some money off and diversify it off into real estate or other things. Well, that's smart they're just do-
1: from a diversifying your business risk, right?
2: Exactly. And it's just common sense, but people don't use common sense because they're being emotional and emotion. When emotion starts overriding what you've got going in your the mental side of your trading or investing process, bad things can happen.
1: What do you think about all these uh We'll just call them kids these days, or Yolos, or whatever. Right of buying <laughs> Dogecoin and Bitcoin. And
2: games. Uh, I've had. Like, I they must... seem to
1: have thrown the whole. Either they're they're immensely good at the mental side, and they can just handle this volatility and the fact that there's maybe not any real value in what they're buying, or they've just thrown that concept totally out the window, and they're highly emotional.
2: Well, I don't what know. Do they <laughs> they they took their stimulus check and they went bought a fraction of a. A share of whatever Dogecoin um, for pennies, and if they make money, they still have to get out of it. And getting out of it might drive it down a cent or two, just on the volume of anything. But you know, that's not a mature market. That's just uh, I don't know, people exchanging cash to each other. It's it's a game. Everybody's playing as a video game or something. Um, I don't think it's serious. I I realize the capitalization of cryptocurrencies is ahead of the valuation of real currencies, but real currency, if I'm a grocery store owner and I wanna price my Brussels sprouts that day, I can put a price on them and I know what they are. If I try to do that same Brussels sprouts Bunch in Bitcoin. I have no idea what prices in Bitcoin because it'll change from the time you pick it up in the produce section to the time you're checking yeah. out at the cashier. Uh, it's just, it needs to stabilize a lot more. There needs to be a lot more players. There needs to be a lot more uh, a credence in being able to get your Bitcoins and, and cryptos back out. Dogecoin is a joke. I
1: like literally as a joke, but, um, yeah, it
2: was started as a joke and it's now grown to this big thing. I, you know, it's humorous, but, and I've, it must've had hundreds of people take runs on me and how come you're not trading cryptos. And I just say, you know, like I made slightly more than a hundred percent on my own money last year in my trading account with COVID crash and the run-up after I caught both sides of it. It was insanely profitable for me, the best year I've had in my life. And I didn't trade a single crypto the whole time i don't need cryptos yeah. to have and i'm in retirement i don't even need to make a hundred percent return it i kind of fell into it because the markets move so much i didn't have a choice i just made a lot of money the, uh, um there's you, other you, years where i don't make that but i yeah. you know you think it, you would
1: have had it in the trend stat portfolio like when the futures came
2: out and uh you know, when the futures came out, if I had been back at Trendstat days and I had last year's movements, uh, it might not have been a hundred, but it might have been probably the best year of Trendstat's life too. No, I mean, prob- would you
1: have would you have had well, yeah, that that as well, but would you have had crypto, right? Like Bitcoin futures in the portfolio, right? I keep talking to trend <sighs> guys like, why not have you're risking one half of one percent on a trade anyway? Right? Like, why not have exposure to it?
2: I probably would have had somebody, <clears throat> one of the computer jocks, ter- seriously, I would have them creating some uh, model yeah. 24 hour on all day long through the weekend, computer system that would be reading the price of Bitcoin and reacting by buyer or selling. So I probably would have something going because there is a lot of movement. Uh, so I would use it as a totally trading vehicle and I would keep it pretty small in the portfolio and, and then instruct clients that I've got it in there. Right. But I would
1: I'll risk, even if it goes to zero and I lose 2% or something like, why not have that in there? And if it goes to 600,000, at least I have a little exposure.
2: Yeah, exactly. I would, I would probably be looking to do that, but only if I could integrate it into the totally computerized environment, I wouldn't want traders sitting around there on Saturday, trying to figure out whether they should go long or short crypto
1: yeah exactly
2: yeah
1: um and
2: there's been some saturdays recently that have been very interesting very interesting right (laughs) nine percent i wonder if that's
1: because the futures right at least the cme futures there's these other off out of the country exchanges that have futures but yeah not as you and i know them So circling all the way back to this Covell book. So what, why does, what's his love affair with you? What, what, what happened to you too?
2: What happened to Covell was he was a, uh, uh, was it Ernst Weil, I believe the term is uh, podcaster. And so he's cruising along interviewing this guy and that guy and whatever. And all of a sudden somebody uh, suggests or mentions my name and he thought he thinks to himself you know this is about episode 200 i'm coming up on a big round number and uh, i've been doing this for several years and i've gotten the mechanics you know the the mic and the sound and the editing and all sure. the stuff that goes along with doing a podcast that you would know and i've got that all figured out i think i'm ready to to ramp up and ask some big names so the very first name he he discovered was hey Tom Boss is retired. He's got a lot of time. He's got a good name from New Market Wizards. He's very helpful with, he saw some of my answers on Facebook that I was doing because we were mutual friends on Facebook and interchanged, you know, uh, a few things here and there, comments on his posts, his comments on mine. There was a meeting of the mind a little bit. He says, you know, I think it'd be fun to talk to Tom. I'm going to do that. So he puts together the hour, hour, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And we have a just a blast talking. It is oh, story times and all sorts of stuff. We covered a wide gamut. He gets done with it, edits it up, puts it up there, announces it to the world as he does everything uh, twice a week. I think he puts out podcasts, and uh, it immediately goes to his number one listen to podcast, and and it's like getting to be twice what the second place is.
0: Right.
2: So he is coming up on number four hundred. So he thinks, well, I've been bumping up who I'm going after and now I'm interviewing people in government and I'm, you know, I'm get, able to get a few sports stars that are retired and an Olympic uh, star from this one Olympic thing. And, you know, he's branching out and getting bigger names and, and diversifying his podcasts and he's having some success. And a lot of people are starting to subscribe to his podcast so he comes up on 400 and he says, you know, why don't I go back to the well and see what Tom's doing? I'll just catch up with him. So we do number 400 yeah. and this is several years have gone by and uh, I've now started up maybe enjoy the ride world. And I've done some things and I've helped a lot of people and I've gone thousands and thousands more people on Twitter and I'm more well known than I've ever been. And number 400 goes ballistic again. <laughs> So he gets the number 600 and he interviews me and he says i'm going to do something different i'm going to put out the super basso episode uh and he combines together three of my interviews with a recording i believe of some re- of speech i gave at mar back in 1995 or something that i don't even remember and he puts that all together in this i don't know four or five or six hour super basso episode Whoa. that to this day is the most listened to podcast out of his thousand
1: and essentially he turned that episode into the book
2: that was the start of the book then we have my wife's foreword, which to me is hilarious (laughs) that's the best part of the book to me is the foreword because it's entitled living with mr serenity by my (laughs) wife and oh she's got all sorts of stuff in there that you know really
1: give us one of the highlights from that
2: oh uh She says stuff like, it's kind of strange because, I don't know, I'll look at the news and uh, I'll see that the markets were off 600 points on the Dow today or something. And she'll casually over dinner ask me, so how did we do? And I'll say something like, oh, we were up, uh, I don't know, 15, $20,000 today. (laughs) And she'll look at me and say, you're kidding. I said, no, no, I'm short NASDAQs and blah, blah, blah. and then there'll be another day where uh, you know we'll, we'll just be out to dinner someplace or something and the topic comes up some we might be with another couple or and they uh, and it's a nothing day or something or the market's been going sideways and um, and she'll say so how we how have we been doing the last month and I'll say oh we're down about five percent this month or is it, she'll go oh my god you know she translates that into dollars and goes oh my god
0: yeah. I could buy a few
2: cars for that and um, she she still looks at the dollars and I look at percents and I've been doing this so long i mean you're managing 600 million you're gonna have days where you real bad days where you lose five million yeah, out you don't of 600.
1: Look at the dollars yeah six hundred dollars
2: no, it drives you nuts. But I'm, I've done that for you know decades. So to me, I'm, so one of her points was, is I can't tell by Tom's demeanor whether we're having a good day or bad day. And, I, yeah. and that's what it should be. You know, that's, that's a good relationship we have. She handles Same. all of our real estate and I handle all of our futures and, and currencies and uh, mutual funds and all that trading.
1: That's where you're supposed to come back to her and say, with you, darling, every day is a good day.
2: <laughs> yeah that's smooth that's if you go to if you went to husband school yeah
1: exactly you can borrow that one um so let's close it out or you got before we go to our favorites you got any other nuggets you want to share anything else
2: no just that the whole back of the book is all the re, uh, a lot of the research that i've uh that i've done plus another interview that i did with aaron Fifield. Fifield, i think's his name yeah uh and that was a good interview as well uh so it's a easy to read um edited from some of the interviews and things that have happened out there to clean up some of the languages and the ahs and the ums and the stuff that happens when you do a a uh, interview yeah you you clean that up into a more readable format and then all the research papers there's some interesting gems in there uh that maybe sparks some imagination for people and uh so i it was a fun project it took us through covid and it's starting to come out after covid and things are starting to open up so the timing's is good and i've had a lot of fun with michael going back and forth on it and getting it yeah, put we'll together put, so,
1: uh, we'll put links to it in the show notes here well thanks So we'll close out with some quick fire questions. If you're ready, I'm ready. The so favorite golf course outside of Arizona.
2: <sighs> Pebble beach.
1: Pebble beach. You've played it
2: several times. Won a several. tournament there.
1: Won a tournament there. There you With go.
2: my bride. All
1: right. I like it. Um, favorite type of wine. That's not your own. And, and that's not the, mm. uh,
2: um, uh, or maybe we'll I'd probably go with a uh, red blend, uh, like. Um, Super Tuscan? Hmm. Not a Super Tuscan so much. I, I like Super Tuscans a lot. I think I'd probably go with a California red blend or Cuvée uh a number of them are good uh none really come to mind specifically no, yeah
1: just just generally is good yeah um and your favorite type to make is what you said before the, uh, I that, would
2: be the uh, that would be the that uh, would be the yeah the amarona is one of my favorites Amarone. i've probably made that uh seven or eight times in the last few years
1: what's its what's its texture what's its Flavor. it's
2: uh it's raisiny a little bit on its finish because of the concentration of the grapes they dehydrate the grapes down then sh- squeeze the juice so it's a little higher in sugar a little higher in alcohol but it has a raisiny sort of uh, texture to it so it's very interesting and different from other wines mm-hmm. and not a whole lot of tannin the way they do it so it uh, i need that i
1: have the bad histamines and the tannin gets and, me and
2: well and my wine doesn't have a whole lot of the uh of the preservatives that a lot of with will put in it. So a lot of people who have allergies can like my wine and they don't seem to get the headaches. All right.
1: Uh, Send so- it out. Send a case out here. to Benny.
2: <laughs> uh, I am not getting a new job being a vintner. <laughs> I am retired happily. I want to stay that way.
1: Um, favorite investing book outside of Covell and the ones we've talked about. I'll
2: tell you a strange one that okay. has really impacted my, uh, of my life, my investing life and my thinking lately. Lawrence, my partner in the seminar in Miami coming up, Lawrence Bensdorp is his name. He's a Dutch fellow, lives in Brazil. Brilliant guy, uh, uh, never even finished high school, but knows his investing. He's, he's been very successful in doing what he's doing. He actually uh, wrote a book that I really love called Automated Stock Trading Systems. And it's basically about automating and running multiple systems at the same time and what you look for in doing that. That has been easy to read and highly educational. I've referred a lot of people to that book. Um,
1: is it in Portuguese or is it in
2: English? Uh, you know, he wrote it in English, but uh, it, it has been translated a little bit and in a few other languages. I'm not sure, sh- I, I know uh, it's in Korean now, uh, but I haven't kept track of what other languages it's in i only need the english version myself uh but he uh you know during covid he just kind of said okay can't go anywhere i think i'll just move to brazil and learn portuguese so <laughs> he had five languages now he has portuguese six. so um, and now he's fluent in portuguese
1: and so you meant, mentioned dancing you also mentioned uh, mentioned singing you got a favorite character? i uh,
2: Yeah, um, I'm a a Frank Sinatra, Fly Me to the Moon, uh, Summer Wind, um, Engelbert Humperdinck, After the Loving, uh, Dean Martin uh, uh, on an evening in Roma. uh, Some of those.
1: You do it at this at home or you go to a karaoke bar? I
2: I have complete karaoke setups at both of my houses. And I'll invite people over. And we open the wine up, and we have individual mics for everybody, so we don't spread COVID germs that much, and uh, we we stay socially distanced. and have a great time.
1: Perfect. We-
2: and that, you know, I take care of the Frank Sinatra and other people. You know, take care of uh, John Denver, and uh, my wife tends to sing a lot of uh, carpenters and Ann Murray, and a little bit more alto voices. I'll send you uh,
1: my. Uh- my family did a covid karaoke a few a few efforts i'll send one to you i don't know if it's ready for public consumption
2: (laughs) well it's fun because especially with everybody being locked up i found it being very liberating to get out and i have a huge room that everybody was in so there's easy to separate and everybody just brings like an appetizer or a bottle of wine or something and you just have fun and i we built up a a piece of wood with individual mic covers and you can get them from amazon different colors and you just got to remember okay i am the hot pink or i'm the green or i'm the black uh and then every time you go up there we just change out the cover on the mic and you're in good shape love
1: it uh and lastly we ask everybody your favorite star wars character
2: (laughs) hmm okay okay i would say uh han solo always uh made me laugh um yeah
1: he was pretty uh just some of the the
2: joke yeah under pressure he's going into warp drive and uh or star drive or whatever they called it where all the lights flash by the counter Hyperdrive, um and uh you know and he's joking around with uh the the big guy walkie is he yeah two Shubak. yeah uh and uh and he's in all these situations that just like in trading you know stuff's being thrown at him and all that and he he's saying uh you know something like ah, this might be a little difficult yeah. <laughs> and uh making it sound like it's no big deal but he's about ready to you know blow up that part of the universe or something i i <laughs> I just thought that he had some great lines and uh, was cool under fire. Definitely.
1: I love it. Uh, All right, Tom, thanks so much. Um, We'll look you up next time I'm out there in Arizona.
2: Yeah, please do. It's fun. My dad's
1: moved down to uh, Tucson. So I get down there once or twice a year now.
2: Well, in some cases you got to come through Phoenix to get to Tucson because Tucson's got a lesser airport. So you'll find some of the flights go into Phoenix and then you, uh, you kind of have one more leg to, finish yeah, your your flight flew
1: out of phoenix last time so
2: yeah it's Definitely. only uh probably from tucson to the airport it might be an hour hour and 15 something like that maybe right. depends I'll on traffic my
1: money in a in a golf game
2: <laughs> yeah we can uh, i'll have you up to pinnacle Peak country club if you want you know uh, if you can spend an extra day here done done it, and it's, done uh, it's i fun. want some
1: wine yeah. and some golf and then we'll call it, we'll call it a we day. can
2: handle both of those we'll it's been a pleasure everyone. talking to you yeah, uh, It's been a real pleasure and a lot of fun to chat with you. I hope it uh, helps some investors out there. And I hope, uh, uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day and the podcast goes well for you.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Bye, Jeff. Bye-bye. The Derivative is brought to you by CME Group. CME Group is the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. For more information and educational resources about futures and options, visit cmegroup.com.
0: You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCM Alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.